What Jesus did once and for all means that we are secure in our relationship with God. What Jesus did doesn't require sacrifices over and over again. Jesus isn't up there just having to die on the cross every day for our sins. Jesus doesn't die on the cross every day for our sins. Whereas the old covenant was a sacrifice that needed to be made again and again in order to atone for sins. Jesus' sacrifice was made once and for all, which means that we are righteous. We're made righteous by Christ. Hey everyone, welcome back to How to Study the Bible. My name is Nicole and I am so glad to be here with you as we're exploring the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament in a little series called Unveiled. So I've picked out a few characters from the Old Testament that their under, our understanding of them is completely transformed because of Jesus. So you may be thinking, what in the world does that mean? So let's back it up a little bit. So the Old Testament was written, you know, thousands of years before Jesus came and had an earthly ministry. And the Old Testament represents God's establishment of what it means to be his chosen people, the Israelites, and the experience of the Israelites being God's chosen people, being given a way to live, that's the law, um, failing again and again to live by that law, being told by prophets, hey, you come back to God. That's kind of the, the whole story. And then what happens in the New Testament is we see that in Jesus, this same pattern repeats. Jesus comes to earth. He's considered the new Adam, like we talked about last week, and he establishes his kingdom. He says, this is what it's like to come to the kingdom of God. Jesus's message was not you're a sinner, so pray this prayer so you can go to heaven. Not that that's not a part of of our Christianity, but his actual message is the kingdom of heaven is near. So when Jesus came in the Gospels, he starts to talk about the kingdom of heaven is near. He starts to establish what it means to be God's people. He lays out what that law is, what those rules of the kingdom are, and then the rest of the books are about pastoral letters, letters from church leaders saying this is what it means to really understand this new covenant. Okay, so we see this repeating pattern in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And for many people who've come to faith, they kind of might wonder, why is the Old Testament even important then? If if it's clear that Jesus has established a new covenant, as he says, a new promise, which we're going to talk about covenants and promises in just a minute. But if Jesus has established something new, why do I have to read all this stuff in the Old Testament? Because, I mean, guys, let's be honest. If you get into the Old Testament, sometimes you're like, what is going on here? You know, it's, it's a lot to interpret. There's a lot of different history that you might not be aware of. There's crazy stories. There's names that are hard to pronounce. It doesn't go in chronological order all the time, you know, so there's a lot going on. So for those of us who are just your regular folks, you know, trying to, to seek God and, and do life, which is you guys, all of us together, you may wonder, what's the point? Like, why do I, why do I need to know or be in the Old Testament? So we talked about at the beginning of this series, the reason that we want to know and be in the Old Testament, because it tells us in Second Corinthians that the Bible has been veiled. This idea of understanding the Old Testament has been veiled, Second Corinthians 3, and it is now unveiled because of Jesus. And knowing that it's been unveiled and being able to understand it as unveiled will make us bold and confident in Christ.
let's just say you don't know that much about your town, but you love your town. And then you find out that the way that your town was established was this crazy story of this family of pioneers who labored and believed and overcame obstacles and there's this like really cool history and there's a building that you walk by in your town and you never knew that that building was the original building. So what happens in the difference between being like, yeah, I love my town and oh my gosh, I know the story of my town. I know why this building is here and it's so important. And what it does in your spirit is it creates deeper roots and it also makes you love that place even more than you way more than you did before because of knowing the story. So when we think about the idea of wading into like the Old Testament and trying to understand it, we're doing it because it gives us deeper roots, helps us fall more in love with the story. And it gives us a faith that is built built on a foundation that goes beyond the storms of our everyday life, the storms of our culture. You know, we're in a little tiny blip of history. But if you don't know anything else about history and about the way it plays out, this tiny blip of history can feel pretty hard, you know, and you might think, I think the church is falling apart. You know, you might think, I think our country is falling apart. You have all of these thoughts and and to not have any grounding in something bigger than yourself, longer than your own personal history. What this Bible gives us, this understanding and interpreting and going into scripture is it actually gives us the ability to understand life on a bigger scale. And we're, it's a mandate. I mean, in second Corinthians, we're told like, you're going to understand this differently and you're going to have boldness and confidence because of it. So that's why we do what we do. <laughs> it was a very long prologue to say that we're about to jump into Genesis 14 and Genesis 15. Over the next two weeks, we're going to look at two characters in scripture that are re, let's say, reinterpreted in the New Testament in a way that gives us a very full understanding of what Jesus has really done in establishing a new promise for us. And I promise you, if you hang with me, we are going to get to the point at the end, our fourth question, what does this mean for me? And I I actually deeply believe that there are powerful applications of this concept of what we're going to learn for your life. It just takes some walking through it. Okay, so we're not going to go longer than we normally do. But I want you to hang with me because we are going to walk all the way to what does this mean for me? But it's it may feel like a a road that's turning a few times. Okay. We might be making some twists and turns before we get to what does it mean for me? Remember we talk about the beginning of the alive method? Some things in scripture, you just read them. You're like, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It doesn't take a lot of interpretation. Some things in scripture you read, we have to do more work. We got to dig in a little bit deeper and we're going to do that today. So one of the most mysterious figures in scripture. And anytime, anytime someone's mysterious in scripture, they don't get mentioned a lot. People love to add a lot to the story. And I want to encourage you if you ever felt that way. I mean, this one of those is angels, like people and Satan. People love to add a lot to the story of angels, to the story of Satan. And you can be sort of 
living in a world where you're thinking about things that you've heard before, or like legends or, you know, in your mind, but you don't actually know what the Bible says about that person. And what we're here to do is to know what the Bible says about that person, then we can go to interpretation. If you're pulling in all these interpretations before you even know what the Bible says, you're very likely to drift and to get off course. And so we're here to be students of the Bible together. So we're going to do that. We're not going to do the extra stuff. I'll tell you what some of the extra stuff is in this particular character, but we're going to start with just what the Bible says. Okay, so we are looking at a character called Melchizedek. Ooh, say that slowly a few times. Melchizedek is mentioned really only in three places in scripture. He's mentioned in Genesis 14 that we're going to look at. He's mentioned once in Psalm 110. And then there's an entire chapter interpreting who he is in Hebrews chapter 7. So we're going to go look at that. But some of the ways we know what we want to pay attention to, who's important, how to interpret it, is because of the way they're mentioned in the New Testament. So the reason I'm starting with Melchizedek is he's the first character in the Old Testament who has a significant role to play in this idea that we our hearts are being unveiled, our minds are being opened to the great big story of God's redemptive narrative throughout history and in our own hearts. And this is the first, really, to me, significant, significant after Adam person who just appears. Okay, so I'm going to read to us from first uh, from Genesis 14. And it's a it's a very short passage. It's just verse 17. Well, I'm going to start in verse 18. But in verse 17, it says that he was that Abraham was actually out doing battle. Okay, so remember, what is this? You know, when we think about what's the backstory, this is a tribal culture. So when it says kings and kingdoms, it's like towns and mayors, except they all have weapons and they've got to defend themselves. So we're going to, we're in a season, we're in a season in world history where there is tribalism and conquest. The way that you survive is you have to defeat your enemies. You got to assimilate your enemies. If they're near you, there is no military. There is no 911. There's no police. There's nobody going to, no, there's no law between tribes necessarily, unless they make treaties. So it would be very common for there to be tribal warfare going on between basically villages. I I mean, I don't know if this is the right thing to picture, but picture a little bit of Lord of the Rings, if you've seen Lord of the Rings. So it says that Abraham was out and he had defeated some kings. Oh, and it was kings that were allied together. Okay. So then in verse 18, it says this, this is Genesis 15, I'm sorry, 14, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Um, That's it. (laughs) So if you're reading fast... You might be like, okay, 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 because you're, you're like in the midst of all this other stuff. They're talking about all these other kings. They're talking about Abraham defeating people. All of that is happening, right? And you might be like, this is just another little moment in a historical narrative. But here's where we get some extra clues. Now, if you weren't here with me on this 
podcast and you were like, who's Melchizedek? One thing you could do is look up the name Melchizedek in your BibleStudyTools.com. You would just easily find the three things that I just told you. So this is about being curious. So if we're in that, like, you know, we're doing our what does it mean or what does it say? We'd be like Melchizedek. Where else does that appear in scripture? If we were to catch, this was to catch our eye. So the reason I know that it's elsewhere is because you can just put the name in and see where else it shows up in scripture. So here's what it says in Psalm 110. The other place in the uh, Old Testament where Melchizedek is mentioned. Psalm 110 uh, says, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Hmm. So now we have this weird mention of this mysterious king who's mixed in with all these other kings way back in Genesis 14, before Abram's name is changed. We're going to learn about that. All we know about Abram at that point is that God has like told him to go into the land that he will inherit and he, and he's on the move. That's, that's, we don't really know a lot more than that. We actually don't know a lot about God's engagement with people at this point. You know, we know Adam and Eve. We know, we know about creation. So it's very, very early on in the story. Yet here we are in Psalm 110 and we're hearing about this guy again. And what I love about your study Bible is you can go and look at the intro to Psalm 110. If we say, what is the backstory? And it says, this is about the messianic king priest. This is, this is, so when you see messianic, that's talking about the Messiah. That's talking about Jesus. So scholars have said, hey, Psalm 110 is a key chapter that really points to prophecies about who Jesus is going to be. So now we're hearing about, okay, this is a prophecy Psalm and Melchizedek is mentioned again. And if you go back then and you're like being curious and being like, hmm, you want to be curious about, wait a second, this king just appears. It's not Abram's king. We've never heard anything about this king before. It's not Abram's king. We don't know where this king came from. And Abram gives him a 10th of everything he had. We just know that Abram just defeated all his enemies. So he just plundered the villages around him. He gave a 10th of his stuff to this mysterious guy that we don't know who he is. And then in our, what does it say? Or what's the backstory? Sorry, guys, what's the backstory in verse 18? It says, Melchizedek means my king is righteous or king of righteousness. Salem is a shortened word for Jerusalem and is related to the Hebrew word for peace. Okay, so now we're starting to be like, maybe a little unveiled. Maybe this mysterious guy is about something more like, wait, he's the king of righteousness, the king of Jerusalem. He's a mysterious king who comes along who Abram gives a tithe to a 10th of all of his plunder. And then in Psalm 110, it's a messianic psalm saying you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So we know that in other places in scripture, the order of the priesthood is in the Old Testament are called Levites. Okay, so they're the Levites, and we can learn lots about them by reading about them. Those were the chosen um, ambassadors of God's temple. Um, they were in a family. So if you were in the Levite tribe, you were a Levite, you were a priest in that. That was kind of your job in the body of you know, the chosen people, right? There's craftsmen, there's, but there's also priests. And so we know that the God's chosen people have a priesthood called the Levites. This idea that there's a priesthood of Melchizedek is completely different. And then he's never mentioned again. Like, it's crazy. It's so strange. But then 
when we get to Hebrews 7, which is where we know that he's mentioned again, we get an entire chapter of the Bible that's devoted to helping us understand why Melchizedek is important. (laughs) And this is fascinating because if you have not read Hebrews 7, I really want to encourage you to read it. I almost want to read the whole thing to you, but instead of reading the whole thing to you, I'm going to read you a few bits and pieces, but I'm hoping it's enough that it makes you want to go read it yourself because I don't know that you know that the Bible can help you this way. (laughs) It can be really clear. So this is Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. Here's what's happening. It says, okay, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Let me tell you what the verse is right before seven. You know how it's always good to read a couple verses before and after. It says in six, verse 20, Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, okay. So the reason we would want to understand, and maybe you would, maybe you would trip upon this idea because you were reading the book of Hebrews or doing a Bible study in Hebrews. You would want to go back to the Old Testament and read Genesis 14, understand it there. We're doing it the other way around. We read it in Genesis 14. We looked up his name and we're like now like putting all the pieces together. And in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is making connections for us and has clearly stated that Jesus is a priest. He serves in the role of priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so now let's go on in chapter seven. This Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and he was the king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Verse three, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires descendants of Levi who become priests. Remember I told you that order of Levites to collect a tenth from the people, that is their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So what we find is now Hebrews chapter seven is showing us what it looks like to have our mind unveiled to the depth and the beauty and the connections of our God, the same God who put the stars and moon in place, the same God who formed creation, who separated land and sea, the same God who says that he breathed life into man and woman and made them in his image. This same God has been writing the story from beginning to end. So many of us get really tripped up in the Old Testament because we're like, oh, it's violent. It's a God of wrath. We, we I get it. If you're just reading it straight. But when you dig a little deeper, you understand the context, you read a little bit about the history, then you find these beautiful places like in Hebrews chapter seven that interprets an entire like moment for you (laughs) with this bigger vision of what's happening. You start to feel this sense that this is really real. Like this is God's way. This is what he does. Like, so this, the passage goes on and talks about all of the ways that actually, the, because of what happened there in that moment that we read about in Genesis 14, it's clear that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. That's really the point is if someone's blessing you, they're, they're greater than you. And if you're giving someone a tenth of your stuff to with that blessing, they're greater than you. And then Hebrews chapter seven goes on to say, 
This is really showing us what it means that Jesus is not anymore like the old order. The old order of priests was Levites. Jesus is not from that order. When Jesus serves as our priest, meaning he's the one who makes a sacrifice for us so that we can be in the presence of God, Jesus makes sacrifices so that we can be righteous We can be with our creator God. We can be not separated from our God by sin. When he atones for our sin, when he makes it right because of our sin, he's not doing that in the old way. He's not doing it like the Levites did who had to keep making sacrifices over and over again because they weren't perfect. He's doing it, as Hebrews 7 says, in the order of Melchizedek. And so you can go read that in seven and see that there's this unveiling of this idea of a new covenant and a new promise and that Jesus is our guarantee that the the promise is better. The covenant is better. What we're living in now with this new high priest is better. Verse 25 in chapter seven says Hebrews, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The first unveiling we have around Melchizedek is that this mysterious person in scripture, when we think about this idea of what does this really mean? What it means is, first of all, the story is so much bigger. There's so much to discover. What it also means is that Jesus has established a new world order. And in doing so, there's these these um, callbacks to the beginning of time where we see that God has been intentionally moving, using moments in history to create this redemptive narrative that plays out and culminates in who Jesus is. And Hebrews 7.25 gives us that sense of, we have something new that is so powerful. And what does it mean for you? Have you ever felt like you just have to keep coming back to God again and again, and you're just, oh, I keep messing up, and I'm such a failure? You know what? What this passage tells us is that what Jesus did once and for all means that we are secure in our relationship with God. What Jesus did doesn't require sacrifices over and over again. Jesus isn't up there just having to die on the cross every day for our sins. Jesus doesn't die on the cross every day for our sins. Whereas the old covenant was a sacrifice that needed to be made again and again in order to atone for sins. Jesus' sacrifice was made once and for all, which means that we are righteous. We're made righteous by, by Christ, who is in the order of Melchizedek, a completely different kind of priest. So we have this completely different kind of priest, which means we don't need a priest to intercede intercede for us. We have a high priest interceding for us. It's Jesus. We have a high priest who in his perfection doesn't have to keep making sacrifices for us, but he continues to intercede for us. He continues to show us his grace. He continues to make it right. It's all been done for us already. So when we think about the idea of what does this mean for me? I just, I just hope you're falling more in love with Jesus. (laughs) I hope you're falling more in love with the idea of what grace really is, which we're going to talk about next week as well. I hope you're falling more in love with your security, your identity, your confidence that comes from our great high priest, Jesus Christ. All right, you guys, we're in Genesis 15 next week. If you want to read ahead. Thanks for listening to How to Study the Bible with Nicole Eunice, a production of lifeaudio.com and the Salem Web Network. This episode was produced by Kelly Gibbons and our executive producer, Stephen McGarvey, and edited by Stephen Sanders. If you enjoyed what you heard today, 
we'd love for you to head over to your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. It really does help people find us. To learn more about Nicole, you can check out her website at NicoleUnis.com. Her book on how to study the Bible is called Help, My Bible is Alive. And you can find a link to that plus a link to Nicole's site in today's show notes. Have you ever considered yourself a messenger? Whether it's mics like this, bookshelves around the world, stages to take or art to make or perhaps businesses to build, it's time we start testifying truth unashamedly, creatively, and in love. My name is Tamara Andress, the host of the Messenger Movement Podcast, which is designed to catalyze Christians to speak, write, build, and testify. If you're ready to turn your message into a movement and want to run with other messengers doing the thing at scale globally, search and follow the Messenger Movement Podcast on your favorite podcast platform today or lifeaudio.com.